Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, I'm Julie Fudge-Smith, and welcome back once again to Your Family Dog. I'm here, of course, with Tina Spring, and today we have one of our most favorite guests coming back to visit us is Dr. Zazie Todd, who has released the most wonderful book this spring called WAG, and it's all about making happy dogs. And if you remember from our last podcast with, with Zazie, it was on making happy dogs happier. So now we have the book to back up the podcast. She um, has her doctorate in psychology. She wrote not only WAG, but she is the author of the Companion Animal Psychology blog, which is dedicated to making happy cats and dogs through science. It's a great blog, and if you haven't become a member of it, you should, because it's absolutely terrific. So, Zazie, thank you so much for coming back on. We're so excited about your book, both uh, Tina and I, I think, loved, loved, loved it and highly recommend it. And, uh, in fact, Tina has her copy open in front of her. Zazie has her copy plus one on her shelves. And I, unfortunately, I don't have my copy in front of me, so I'm the loser here. But I believe <laughs> that I will still be able to contribute to the podcast, even without the book in front of me. But for now, we're going to let Tina take over and uh, ask the first question of Dr. Zazie. Okay, so Zazie, first, it's fabulous to finally get to meet you. I'm super excited to be able to do that. Um, but I wanted to, and I'm, I am pouring through WAG. Um, I'm, I'm not, I'm busy. I'm not a, a quick learner, so I am, I am slowly working my way through the book. But I was crazy excited about um, toward the end of the book you have the checklist for a happy dog. Um, I'm always looking for ideas of what we can, what I can put into the hands of owners of families to help them gauge like how happy is their dog and to have really down to earth science-based, how to improve quality of life for our dogs, not just for their, their physical health, but for their mental and their emotional health as well. So can you talk to us about the list and how a family could use it to help optimize their dog's experience? Sure. And thank you both for having me on. I'm really happy to chat with you. And I'm glad to hear that you love the book. And the checklist for a happy dog, as you say, it's right at the end of the book. And the purpose of the book is to explain the science of dogs and what makes them happy and why that's a good idea, but also to provide lots and lots of practical tips. So as I was working on the book, I thought it really needed a checklist that people can use. And what I'm hoping is that people can use the checklist to see what they're already doing right. And they'll find things that, you know, they'll be really happy that they're already doing. And at the same time, I think most people will find a few things that maybe they haven't tried and they might feel like trying that might make their dog even happier, or in some cases might even resolve some issues that they're having with their dog. So what I'm hoping is that when people use that checklist, they will actually email me and tell me how they found it and uh, what they found out from it and which which particular things they found the most helpful or important. And it, it covers lots of different things because the book itself takes you right through from what to think about when you're getting a dog through helping a senior dog and what to think about towards the end of a dog's life. Um, so 
the checklist is just like a summary of the most important things in the book, which you can then apply to your life with your dog, hopefully. So we know, and I think we all would agree that, that for our lives, for our dog's lives, for our partner's lives, we're always striving. There is that healthy striving of evaluating where we are today and can we improve the situation? Can I improve my diet? Can I improve exercise? Can I improve sleep? Can I improve my relationships? So I love that there's these really practical, basic tools that we can use to improve our relationship with our family dog. Thank you. And I think it surprises people sometimes to know that canine science has so many practical uses and it does look at things that are relevant to ordinary life with a dog and to how we live our lives with dogs and what we do to treat to treat dogs, to look after them. And I think it does surprise people because they think of scientists as being in a separate kind of place in their ivory tower and not doing things that are practical. So I think it's it's really nice for people to be able to understand not just what the recommendations are, but why we make those recommendations and why they're important. Well, I think the other thing that, that people will begin to realize is the more they incorporate positive reinforcement training and re- a reward-based system into training their dog, what they're going to find, it has a positive influence on their life. I think they're going to find that hopefully this will bleed over into other areas of their of their life as well. They're going to treat their kids and their spouse and their, bo- their boss better because they realize that that positive interaction, <clears throat> excuse me, and that positive reinforcement enhances everyone's life, not just the dog's, but yours as well. And that's one of the things that I think most people become away somewhat surprised about positive reinforcement training is how much it, how happy it makes them in addition to their dog. Um, Yes, I think so. And I think what's really interesting to me is that we already know that using aversive methods like prong and shock collars and leash jerks and so on has risks for dogs' welfare. But the other thing that comes out of the science is that training with positive reinforcement is good for dogs. It's an enriching thing to do. Um, There's research that shows dogs like working to earn a reward. So actually training your dog to they're working to earn food. That's really good for them. Scientists called it the Eureka effect. And I think that's really nice. And so um, I think that's really positive. And then, as you say, it becomes like a nicer thing to be doing with, with you and your dog. You enjoy the experience of training your dog. I think nothing beats the look on a dog's face when they're happily waiting for a treat. I think that's wonderful. That's a really nice look to see. Um, but um, yeah, it also can expand into other areas of your life. And I mean, it's no accident that there's a whole series of research studies on bringing up children that show that aversive methods, punitive methods are actually bad for children. And there's been a lot more research, obviously, on on children and parenting methods than on dogs and training methods. But essentially, it's the same thing that applies. Aversive methods and punishment are not good, basically. <laughs> So what would you say, one of the things that I find that, that people come at me when they, when they're, um, when I'm trying to convince them that positive reinforcement is the way to go is they'll say, well, what I'm really looking for is a sort of a balanced approach that I want to, that basically they want to be able to both reward and punish. And, um, I try to explain to them, if you do that, you're really going to confuse the dog. But um, do you have any scientific stuff that explains why having a quote-unquote balanced approach where you punish the bad thing and reward the good thing doesn't really work that well? 
Well, in general terms, there's been a whole set of scientific studies that show that using aversive methods, either on their own or with positive methods as well, is not good for the dog's welfare. It risks fear, anxiety, stress. It risks an aggressive response and it risks causing a worse relationship with the owner. And some of the studies actually suggest that a balanced approach is kind of worse because it's probably confusing for the dog that sometimes their owner is nice to them and gives them treats or petting or whatever and other times the person is is not not so nice and is doing things that actually are quite aversive for them and I think one thing that's hard for some people to understand is the change in mindset that goes with using positive reinforcement because people can get very focused on how can they stop their dog from doing something um, and they don't realize that one way to stop their dog from doing that is actually to train them to do the thing that you'd rather do them instead. Um, and if you're just focused on help, how do I stop this and, and not follow it through, then people find that quite tricky to understand sometimes. And sometimes they kind of don't really believe it until they've actually seen it happen in practice. Um, absolutely. Uh, that's one of the things that I have tried to explain to people is that um, if you use adversives, um, your dog is going to end up being very confused and probably you're going to increase his anxiety and his fear because you become unpredictable. One of the things that really helps with positive reinforcement training is that you become very predictable in the way in which you interact with your dog. So I think that that's, that's something that's... Um, a really important part to emphasize and, and that nobody does well in a state of confusion. You know, think about yourself. Um, if you don't know what's going to happen, you tend to, um, you know, freeze. It's like, I, I don't know what to do, so I'm, I'm not going to do anything. And I try to remind people that no behavior is not the same as good behavior, that what you've probably done is, is actually shut your dog down, which is not something you want to do either. Mm. Mm. There's actually also a really interesting study that looked at dogs trained in two different training schools. And what they found was that the dogs trained with positive reinforcement tended to look more at their owner, uh, which is really interesting because, of course, if you want your dog to do what you're asking them to do, they need to be looking at you and paying attention. And the ones trained with uh, the aversive methods were not paying as much attention. They weren't looking as much at the owner. So I think that really speaks to the difference it makes in terms of the relationship that you have with your dog and the fact that you need them to pay attention to you and treats work, basically. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Well, I think about it too. If, if you don't trust somebody or you don't like somebody or you're scared of somebody, you're not looking them in the eye. You're trying to sort of, you know, minimize the amount of contact in, in you know, in the event that you might trigger whatever. So it makes perfect sense to me that dogs would not be looking at owners that they fear or that they don't trust because you don't know what that's going to bring. And certainly if I make myself less obtrusive or less intrusive, then it's less likely that something bad's going to happen to me. So that's that's really interesting, but that makes a whole lot of sense to me. Tina, you got any uh, anything else, anything you want to add to this? So, so I'm actually a crossover trainer, right? Um, I don't think that it's inappropriate for a dog to be told no. However, that doesn't mean that I'm okay with hurting them or scaring them or being ugly to them. Um, and I think a lot of times positive reinforcement based trainers get a bad rap that we're permissive. And I, what I tell people all the time is that 
the more aversive methods um, are are fast, right? And so it it can appear that there's not a cost associated to that. Like I think humans are kind of predisposed toward the negative. Like we are very primate-ish um, with short tempers. <laughs> and so I think learning a more positive reinforcement-based way to do things, no question it takes longer. It does. Like I can, you know, any person can punish a dog pretty darn effectively. Um, but there's a huge cost to both the person and the dog. And, and I, I don't want to say that I think telling a dog no is wrong. I think dogs like kids need limits in order to be safe. Um, but we can teach those boundaries in a positive way. I don't think anybody here is saying like your dog should just be allowed to do whatever it wants and that, you know, they can never hear no. (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely. We need to teach dogs how to behave and we need to teach dogs the skills to to live in our world. And some of that involves good manners and not doing things that we hate them doing, like being jumpy and mouthy or whatever, which can be a real pain. Some people don't mind. But, you know, if if you're someone who does mind, then it it can be really quite unpleasant (laughs) to deal with. And we need to teach dogs how to do the things that they have to put up with and tolerate, like going to the vet as well. And I think it's up Mm -hmm. to us to train our dogs to do what we want and to behave in the ways that we like and obviously if you like your dog jumping on you that's fine it's the same as if you like your dog cuddling on the couch with you that's fine or sleeping on your bed that's fine and if you don't want them to that's fine too and that's that's up to you and it's up to you to train your dog to do things the way that you want them to be in in your household to fit in your in your house so that you and the dog can be happy. Well, and I often think like the magic, like my goal when I'm working with a family is that the family is learning the dog as much as the dog is learning the family. So what I always, I, my goal, maybe it's not always, always attainable is like Charlie Brown and Snoopy, right? Like I want it to be that my dog and I, as we're aging together are becoming like that perfect pair of jeans that I know them the way I know myself and they know me the way they know themselves. And we're comfortable with that. We can't both, we're not infinitely adjustable, right? Mm -hmm. I don't expect my feral dogs to act like super social dogs, but I do have goals for them and their quality of life that, that take into account who they are and give them agency about what our life being co-created includes or, or doesn't include like my dogs are not going to ever be dogs who go to the dog park. That, that is not okay with me. Um, and it would not be okay with them and it would be dangerous and not because my dogs aren't lovely. They are, but they, they're sensitive and they, they aren't gonna be as malleable as some other, some other dogs. So I liked that your book took into account kind of releasing from owners this idea that there's some paradigm that we should all aspire to. Like, I don't, I don't actually think all dogs should go for a walk. I think if your dog is terrified, a walk in your yard where it's safe and comfortable can absolutely be as enriching in a positive way that a a walk for a confident dog out somewhere else can be. So I love that you built in 
that you're not expecting every dog to be this super social thing the same way that not all humans are super social. Mm, thank you. I, I love the way you depict the relationship between you and your dog or between anyone and their dog, really. It's, it's very much a mutual relationship in which quality of life is important to both of you. And yes, I think you're absolutely right that not all dogs are going to want to go for a walk. A terrified dog is going to be much happier spending some time in the yard with you, sniffing things, playing games. You have to look at the dog that you happen to have rather than the dog that you maybe might have imagined for yourself beforehand. Um, and I think sometimes we can feel a lot of pressure from other dog owners that we should have, you know, the perfect dog. They're always going to behave perfectly and we're embarrassed if they don't. And certainly my, uh, made me know Bodger passed a couple of months ago, but certainly there were times when he embarrassed me, <laughs> definitely. But, you know, he was an absolutely lovely, wonderful dog as well. Um, he did like to jump all over people <laughs> and he would secretly wait. Uh, he knew that he wasn't meant to jump on people. So he would sit there to be patted and he was he would look like he was being angelic. And then all of a sudden, when no one was expecting it, that's when he would jump up to lick someone on the chops. And then I would be really embarrassed. So, so I, just I always to- think that they think it's funny. Like I, my experience is that the vast majority of dogs have a really good sense of humor and they do learn how to bust our chops, right? How to go, (laughs) you know, like, ha ha ha, you, you weren't paying attention. And so I'm going to take out, I'm going to, I'm going to express this behavior that maybe is not your favorite. Um, I had a Doberman many, many years ago, who's to give you an idea of who he was, it was like living with Cary Grant. Like he just, he was a gentleman of a dog, but he loves to do face kisses and I am not a face kiss girl. And so once a day, whether, whether I needed it or not, I would take my glasses off and hold my hair back and go, okay, Gus Parker. And he would just (laughs) clean my, every pore was going to be I used to joke that he would lick my brain. Um, and he, and I personally, my experience was that he knew that that was just an act of love, that I was just giving him agency to do the thing he desperately wanted to do all the time. And that was not my thing. And he also kind of, he used to be funny. He would, he'd lick and lick and lick and lick and lick, and then he'd stop. And he would put his nose so that it was touching very gently the uh, the tip of my nose and then look at me all cross-eyed going more or are you gonna, are we done <laughs> and just asking the question and I appreciated the question because sometimes I was like all right go ahead and other times I was like okay yeah no you damn near drowned me that time so um used to get that suction nostril thing going on that I used to think <laughs> was gonna cost me some brain cells um <laughs> But like he just, he loved being able to do that. And it is so not my thing. Like I do not like dog kisses, but I was willing to give in. And it was, it was some of the magical, I'm sure there were things he did for me that were not his favorite, but he put up with them. And I I think that good relationships are based that way, that you're, we're taking data from the other and incorporating that when we can making, making compromises. So talk to me about how I would do a sniffari. If I have a dog who let's say is 
worried about other dogs or worried about new people or new places or cars, how might a family incorporate a Snifari into normal life for their dog? It's lovely because it's so easy to take your dog on a Snifari just means letting them follow their nose as much as they like and insofar as it's safe for you to do so. Um, So a lot of people will tend to hurry their dog along on a walk and not let the dog sniff as much as they want. But smell is so important for dogs. They like to check the female, um, sniff who's been by which wildlife has been there and so on. And so it's just letting them have those opportunities to smell. And it could be in your yard, it could be out on your street, just following, letting them decide where to go and follow their nose. And um, it's a lovely opportunity for them and it's very enriching. And it makes the dog walk about the dog and what the dog wants rather than just about trying to get this particular route done within a certain length of time, which is what many people do. One thing that uh, we had um, Eileen Anderson on to talk about canine cognitive dysfunction, Um, I believe that's, anyway, basically doggy Alzheimer's. And we were talking about sniffaris. And one of the things that I think that people think, you know, you can set up a sniffari in your house. One of the things that she did for her dog, who going out became very problematic and difficult for her her. Alzheimer's dog. So she, when she went to go to the grocery store, she brought home and she just lay the bags out in a line and let him go down the line and sniff the grocery bags as they came in the house. Or she'd take him out on a leash because he'd like to be on his leash and she'd walk him around the car. At least I think she was on a leash. Anyway, let him sniff the tires of where the car had been. And I was thinking that um, we had Dr. Wendy McElroy in to talk about uh, scent work. So you could do something like that. You could even take little uh, felt squares and put different scents on them and put them around your yard and allow your dog to discover those scents around the yard. So I think that if you have a dog who's fearful or who's senile or who just really walking around the block is is terrifying for him. There are ways in which you can enrich it and provide that sniffari and for for no real cost except for a little bit of your time and creativity. So um, I think the sniffari is is just so wonderful because it really encapsulates what it is a dog needs. And if you're thinking about in terms of what is it my dog needs on the sniffari he needs to sniff, then that opens the creative door for you to create the sniffari wherever that may be. Absolutely. And I think those are are wonderful ideas. And you can see that any dog, when you come home from being out somewhere, likes to come and sniff you and sniff, you know, they're they're getting information about where you've been and what you've been up to. So yeah, bringing the shopping out or just putting smells on felt squares, those are both wonderful ideas. And uh, one of the things I have in, in WAG is a set of quotes from experts who I asked, what's the one thing that would make the world better for dogs? And one of those quotes is from Dr. Alexandra Horowitz, and that's about the importance of smelling and, and letting your dogs have a smell walk. And um, I think that because, of course, she's written quite a lot about the importance of smell to dogs. So she understands the importance of it, really. And I think it's it's just a really nice thing for people to to let their dog do. Yes, absolutely. Um, the um, the other thing you could do, too, is you could incorporate the Sniffari and some training with um, you could. Um, one of the things you can do is a little trail of food. You know, so you could have these felt squares and you could put little pieces of food. And as the dog moves, maybe you can ask him to sit, click, 
give let them take the treat off the felt square. So you can incorporate food, I think, in with the sniffari and make it a little bit more interesting that way. Or even if you have them on the leash and you're walking around the yard, you get to the square. They find the square. You ask them to sit. Click. Let them take the treat. So I think that um, you can do all kinds of interesting things that incorporate uh, training and teaching your dog some of those things that we want them to learn, like you need to wait maybe a little bit here. Or you need to, uh, you know, sit is equal to please. So as soon as you sit down, I'm going to let you have that treat. So I think that that um, one of the beauties of, of training with food is that it can be so easily incorporated into a sniffari. And so then it makes training a lot more fun. So it becomes a game as well as a reward-based system. So It does. That's... That's a nice idea. And also at the moment with people having to stay home so much, (laughs) it's a really good thing to keep dogs interested and engaged. And another thing you could do is shut your dog in a room, get three or four cardboard boxes, spread them out in the living room, put a piece of food in one of those boxes and then let your dog out to find it. And when they find it and eat it, you drop some extra bits of food in as a reward. And if you do that a few times, then your dog is actually quite tired. Um, so it's it's a very good thing to help right now when you're not necessarily able to take your dog for such long walks or for off-leash exercise like you normally would be able to. Right. Well, one of the things that, that I've, you know, and I think we're all ordering a lot more from Amazon. Um, I know that I have little Amazon boxes arriving every day. So when I get a small one, what I'll do, for example, I have a puppy, uh, Clementine. Um, which our audience has, has heard about. Um, our, Clementine's a clumber spaniel, and um, she's very clumbery. But one of the things that she loves is I'll take, she still gets lunch, so what I'll do is I'll take one of the Amazon boxes, put her lunch inside the box, fold it all up, and she has to destroy the box in order to have her lunch. Well, you couldn't ask for anything more exciting for a puppy than to be able to shred a box and have my kibble in there. And it just, you know, so there's just little things you can do like that because, you know, and I'll put the box, I'll have her sit and I'll put the box. So she's got to find the box, you know, and so I, I think that these are things that are really super easy and simple, but are so rewarding for dogs. And you're right, during this this time of uh, one of the things that I, I, I was going to say about, uh, you know, at least in Ohio, you are still you. They still will let you out of your house on occasion, to uh, to go out during quarantine. And the beauty of most leashes is that they're six feet, so you know that if your dog is at the end of the leash, you are at that mandatory six foot distance from the other person. So um, walking your dog on a six foot leash can be really valuable this uh, during this little epidemic because you know exactly how far you are away from people. <laughs> yes, that that's really helpful. And you can still walk your dog here too, but a lot of parks are actually closed to try and discourage too many people from going out and about or because there isn't actually a proper space for for physical distancing in them. So it's not as easy to walk a dog as, it, as it was before. Yeah. How about Georgia? How are things down in Georgia right now? I've been in the house for five weeks. Okay. And I'm a social person, so my stepdaughter and I joke that we're lucky I don't have a homemade face tattoo at this point. So <laughs> I'm managing this stress pretty well, but yeah. And and um I mean, it's funny. It's a funny thing being told you can't do things when I'm what I'm doing is what I would be doing anyway. Like I'm working and I'm spending time with my dogs and my family and cooking and doing all the things I normally do. I'm just doing it 
Oh, I have a naughty dog barking at the door. Um, doing it, being told I'm not allowed. Like there's something about snow days where they tell you you're not allowed to go out that make staying in grumpier. Um, but yeah, we're, we're doing, we're doing well. Um, but thank you for asking. Um, uh, it, my dogs are digging it and they love that we can go for a walk and everybody stays away from them. Um, <laughs> I am finding that my, my customers, I have a lot of fearful dog customers. They're loving the social distancing. It's actually allowing them to take real advantage and people aren't constantly closing their distance, trying to touch the dog or let their dog greet the other dog. So I think Honestly, like I would kind of like it to a certain extent to stay a little bit more that way. I think we ask dogs to be far more social than is fair. I would agree. And I think that the, perhaps the other thing that's, so, that's good about this, because we're trying to find positives in all this stuff, right, um, is that it actually helps train owners on how to maintain distance. That's one of the things that I work with my owners a lot if they have a fearful dog or a dog who may not be fearful but is not as social as they would like, um, is, is how do you comfortably maintain that distance with people without offending them but also protecting your dog? So it's great because we all are having a lot of practice at this right now so that hopefully these owners will be able to provide their dogs with the sniffaris to be able to positively reinforce them when things go well, when somebody walks by and they don't bark or whatever because somebody's keeping a social distance, that this hopefully will turn out to be a real positive experience and, and help our owners understand that um, they can provide for their dog the things that it needs as well as the safety that it needs. Mm. And I think under normal circumstances, people expect to be able to come up to your dog and pet your dog or even hug your dog without necessarily asking, uh -huh. which is not necessarily fair on the dog because not all dogs like that. Not all dogs are pleased to meet other people. Some obviously are, um, are desperate to meet other people because they're so friendly to everyone. But, right. but some dogs need their space and many dogs don't like to be hugged at all. And for a lot of people, that's a bit of a realization that hugging is a bit too full on and intense. I mean, obviously you guys know because you're, you're dog people, but, but a lot of ordinary people who have dogs don't necessarily notice the subtle signs of stress that you see when you go in to hug a dog so the lip lick or the head turning of the head away and so they just don't notice and they'll keep on hugging their dog and that means the dog is always having to experience something that they're not quite comfortable with which is a shame and I think it's so much better when People learn to recognize dogs' body language. But the thing is, normally, if you know that you've got a dog like that and they don't want strangers coming up, it can actually be quite hard to stop people. Oh. You can say, no, my dog doesn't no, want to totally. say hello, but but they, they just want to come. We are, if nothing else, an arrogant species. We want what <laughs> we want. I, I do. So I do something that probably makes lots of people uncomfortable. I muzzle train dogs who are shy so that I can stop rude people um, because nobody. And so one of my customers this week tickled me because she said, okay, so now the dog and I are both wearing masks on our walks. And she's <laughs> like, and I may keep that intact. She's like, cause it never occurred to me that if I just acted like I had some sort of infectious disease that my neighbors would stay away from my dog. Um, and so I, it, you know, she's, she's at least half-heartedly joking, but I actually 
have found like the more a customer says like, no, please, my dog is shy. The more the person who claims to love dogs will force themselves into that dog's space um, and then be mortified when, when the dog takes exception to it. So, um, so, so Zazzy, what do you think is the information that the average person reading your WAG book will be absolutely stunned to learn? Like, what do you think they'll be like, holy guacamole, I never knew that. One of the things that surprises people is to do with the research on using food to train dogs. And I think, you know, we still get a lot of pushback from people. But there has been a really interesting set of research from different research teams. And so one of the things from that looks at um, the use of petting versus praise and food versus praise. And it finds that praise essentially is meaningless to the dog. And I think a lot of people expect that if you say good boy, good girl, that that's enough of a reward for a dog to keep them to do something. But the research shows that unless that is actually followed up all the time by a treat, in which case good dog means, oh, good, a treat's coming, then it doesn't really mean anything and it, it doesn't work to train a dog. And the other thing that I think people find quite surprising is that there is a lovely study which looked at how fast dogs will get will run to get to a particular kind of reward. And they found that the dogs run faster to get a piece of sausage compared to a piece of kibble. And I think that's a really nice finding too. And of course, for dog trainers, it's really relevant because we're always telling people that if you're teaching your dog to come when called, you need to have really, really good treats to use, you know, to reward your dog because this is an expensive behavior for dogs. You know, there's many competing motivators and it's a really important thing that the dog will come. And I think it surprises people that people have actually looked at what kinds of rewards dogs prefer. And I think it's really, really nice that scientists have looked at that. Oh, I, I try too. to encourage people too. to do that testing on their own. Um, I mm -hmm. learned this from Kay Lawrence a bajillion years ago when I was young. And so I do a lot with any dog of going, okay, well, here's a little piece of chicken. Here's a little piece of cheese, one in one hand, one in the other, let them sniff both and go, which one is your favorite? And I assume the one they go to first is the one they like best. And then I make sure it isn't a left hand, right hand preference. Cause some dogs have that too, but there's a bunch of ways to create really a hierarchy, not only in which reinforcer you use and like then comparing like chicken to throwing the tennis ball, which gets a little mm -hmm. bit dicey, but we can definitely test out. But then also does, is the dog more reinforced by coming to me to take the food from my hand or by chasing a piece of hot dog thrown down the hallway that they get to chase. So I always like doing all those differentials. My experience is that it teaches a dog, well, the dogs get this funny look on their face that they go, wait, you care? Because we, we just kind of assume like, oh, here's the chicken the way I most prefer to give it to you. And that they will just be eternally grateful for the chicken fairy. Um, I think they are intrigued when we start to start a conversation with them about, no, 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 you tell me what you like better. You And, and I will say, like, I have totally had the dog that they didn't care what treat you gave them. They, they, it was all, they basically treated it all the same. It was just lovely. I've also had dogs that whatever the novel treat is, is their new Mac daddy favorite. So, you know, eventually I'm trying to come up with like, I don't know, Urdu jerky for, <laughs> for that dog. 
because if I had ostrich jerky, that eventually got old. Um, but I always find that stuff fascinating. And it's what, you know, in, in human relationship and human communication, we care that the person cares more than we care what the person knows. And I'm always, we're just a little bit arrogant that we think like, oh, we know, we know better. I think dogs appreciate the curiosity about who they are and what their likes and dislikes and preferences are the same way that humans do. Yes. And we're, we're back to this, this idea of knowing what the individual dog wants and needs again, which I think is really important. And I think those are lovely experiments to do with the dog. And there is uh, actually a piece of published scientific research that that did something similar and took different types of treat and looked to see which one was the dog's preferred, first of all. And then over time, excuse me, did the dog prefer always to have that particular preferred reward or did they prefer to have a variety? And it was really interesting because it depended on the dog. So there were some dogs that really had this preferred reward that they wanted all the time. And there were other dogs that seemed to like different. They wanted different ones all the time, different types of food. But I think they thought over time, probably even the dogs that had the preferred reward would eventually want a bit of variety too. So it's important to keep changing it up and to keep paying attention to to what dogs are telling us about what they want. Well, and, and honestly, like as my dogs have aged, sometimes they're not able to see that hot dog as like sometimes they need the treat to be stinkier. Sometimes they need to treat to be have more um, disparity between the the flooring or the grass surface and the color of the treat to make it easier for them to identify it. And then one of my favorites in the whole wide world is a thousand years ago when I was learning this form of dog training, I went um, to observe at an agility facility where they were using those horrible Utz cheese puffs. You know, they're like they're horrible. They're disgusting, right? They're orange. They turn everything orange, but they were great because they rolled. And so if they were trying to teach a dog to drive through something, tossing this treat that was basically a ball that would continue rolling had the desired effect. Like it worked really well, but one of the bull terriers, and I will remember this to the end of my days, being the typical bull terrier stepped on his cheese ball and it it turned into dust and he totally thought that it was a dirty trick that the humans had played on him when it was, he had pulverized his reward. It was, so he goes to look for it and it's not there. It was the look on his face was hysterical. Like this mix of like, you're a jerk and wow, mad magician skills. Like it, <laughs> it was, it was very funny. I, I could totally picture Zuzu doing that by the way, Julie. Oh, Zuzu would, would it was only, only it wouldn't be like dirty. She was like, Oh, Oh dear. It's gone. It's just like, it's evaporated and my world has ended would be her look. But, um, I, well, I will sometimes use, um, peanut butter Captain Crunch in the same way because it's round and it rolls. And when I'm doing a, like a toss and treat recall where I want the dog to, to run out to get the treat. And that's when I, when they get to the treat, I click or say good dog, which is their cue to come back to me. But I always want them to come back to me to a better treat with me. So I want something that's fun that rolls like the cheese ball or the Captain Crunch, which is fun to chase. But when you come back to me, that's when chicken and hot dogs happen because I want them to, to feel like, 
I, even though I'm away from my person, I'm still connected to her or him. So, um, yeah, no, I, but yeah, I've had that happen too. It's like it, it rolls underneath something or you step on it and it's like, <gasps> The world has come to an end and, you know, and then, and they don't, and then the other thing is, is it's not like they're going to turn and look at the bottom of their paw, you know, see where the cheese ball is. I just, I've never <laughs> seen a dog actually do that. Step on the cheese ball and then it's I like, had a dog where did it go? who got the baloney stuck on the top of his nose. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, I'm trying to think, that might have been a flat coat too. Um, <laughs> and he just, he, he desperately needed support in that moment because he was not going to figure out how to resolve. And so cross-eyed, I was like, Oh, you're going to give yourself a headache. You silly, silly dog. So I do like, I, I like that, um, that we're even getting into like, what are the characteristics of treats and how they can help build or change a behavior with a dog? Like, um, hot dog and bologna have stopping power. They like suction to the floor. So, so if you need the dog to stop on a dime, toss it a piece of flat bologna and having it stick <laughs> to the floor works really great. Where an Utz cheese ball or a peanut butter Captain Crunch would not be as I, or a nickel of carrot will just totally tend to roll. They right. only land on their edges. That's the rule. Right. So, yeah, but I, this is getting rather into the minutia of treats. But nonetheless, um, if you're really going to, to be effective in your training, understanding the minutia for your dog is going to really boost your training. And um, I, I just, that's why when I'm, when I'm teaching classes and at our orientation, I always tell people, my mantra for treats for training in class is small, soft, and stinky. You want them small because we want to keep the calories down. We want them soft because we're going to spend a whole lot of time chewing and stinky so that we don't notice that they're small. And uh, because you're going to come into a place where there's a lot of other dogs and a lot of other people and there's going to be me and I am going to be building a relationship with your dog based on food. So you need to be more rewarding than me and or a, you know, pee on a pole or whatever it is that is their biggest distraction. So small, soft, and stinky should be your mantra when you really want your dog to pay attention to you. But uh, others may have different mantras. Um, I kind of feel like sometimes I, maybe I ought to embroider that on a pillow, small, soft, and stinky, but then <laughs> no one will understand <laughs> why my pillow says that, so I haven't done it yet. But uh, Dog trainers <laughs> would have some weird pillow mantras. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sit means so, sit. So, <laughs> I can't. So we're G-rated. I can't even use one of mine here. <sighs> I should put it in the chat. So, so um, Zazzy. So when, so would you tell someone, for example, for whom this whole enrichment and you know the person who was raised like a dog is a dog, like you crazy dog trainer people, you're just taking this all to you know to some ridiculous extreme, can they start as simple as like kibble fetch as enrichment, like inside, outside in their apartment, just take a piece of kibble, toss it down the hallway, let the dog go get it, have the dog return to them, pay the dog for the return. Like I know that there's a fine line between training and enrichment. And that's something that you differentiate in the book. How would you help somebody who maybe is, is, not good at play, how would you help them discriminate between those things and err on the side of play versus on the side of 
a training exercise that maybe is not so enjoyable for the dog? That's a really great question. And that is something that I touch on in the book because there's some, the interesting thing about play with a dog is that Dogs love to play. Play is a natural behavior for dogs. But there seems to be something special about playing with their person and the way that dogs behave when they play with a person compared to when they're playing with other dogs is a little bit different. For example, they're more likely to come and show toys to a person than they would be to another dog. And so that means it's really important for us to make time to play with the dog. And even if you're not especially good, if you feel like you're not especially good at playing with the dog, it's something that you can learn to do and learn to be better at. But the important thing is it should be fun. It's not play when it's play. It's not about giving commands to the dog. And it's not as much fun for the dog if it's about giving commands. And I always like tug. I think tug is a really good one to do and I guess in part because Bodger was such a big fan of tug my other dog ghost wasn't quite so keen on it we had to kind of teach him to play tug Bodger absolutely loved it and I think tug is is a really good way for dogs to let off steam and people used to worry uh, they didn't need to but they used to worry that if you let a dog win at tug it was going to be bad for them and it would spoil them and again that's something that scientists have actually studied and it doesn't spoil the dog if you let the dog win it helps them be more engaged in the game the next time so I think when you're playing with the dog you need to pay attention to what the dog is doing and how the dog is finding it and make sure that it really is fun for both of you and that you're not actually turning it into a training session instead because that's I mean, training training with treats, it is fun for a dog, but it's not the same as play. And play is something that you need to also be doing with your dog. So, so do you think, though, that it can start as play and then be an increased drive for a behavior to then float that into a nice, light, fun training game? Because, I mean, I don't know, I I taught my kids a whole bunch of really awesome stuff in the bathtub. And was I teaching them about hygiene and holding their breath and swimming and a whole bunch of other stuff? Sure. But we were doing it in a soft, light, fun, just experiential way. So I think I struggle a little bit with this idea that it's either one or the other. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. And I think training can be a lot of fun. So I, th- I think those words that you said, soft, light, fun, those are the key words in that. And if it if it's giving commands and demanding obedience, then it's not really play and fun. But if it if it if it's if it is light, then then it is more fun. And certainly training can be very good enrichment and it can be very playful. Um, and it can be a lot of fun for both the dog and the owner. So the main thing is that you have fun and it's up to you to find the individual ways that work for you and your dog. Oh, well, I think that this has been a great discussion, Zazie. I really appreciate you coming on and telling, you know, checking in with us again after not being on for over a year and a half. And, and your book, once again, the name of the book is WAG by Dr. Zazie Todd. We can't tell you how much we both love it and think that every dog owner should have a copy of WAG on their shelf, if not by their bedside or in their backpack or wherever it is they may may be going. Well, thank you. And thanks so much for your <laughs> kind words about WAG, the science of making your dog happy. And thanks for having me on. It's really lovely to chat with you both. Well, great. We'll have to have you back on again when you write your second book, WAG Again. <laughs> <laughs> more wags more wags yeah so so yeah so zazzy what what is next for you 
Well, it's interesting that you mentioned books because I am working on another book, but it's not about dogs this time. It's about cats per the science of making your cat happy. So that's very exciting for me. And of course, I'm keeping on writing my blog, Companion Animal Psychology, and people can always come and find me there too in the meantime. It's my, that is like my favorite email every week is that I get my- companion and and it and it also um I really like it because of course like all dog trainers I have like three shelves of books that are in my queue to be read um and so I've learned I have to I have to start managing that or I'm gonna have to live to be 150 years old so um so I really love that you do a lot of hey this is highlighted this is how this book is different um or how this person's research is different, or, hey, here's something new we learned. I really love that it's an easy read and helps me have some discernment about what will be added to my Amazon wish list. Thank you. That's lovely to hear. All right. Well, thank you, Zazie, and we'll see you all next time on Your Family Dog. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.